Hi, my name is Chris Rouse, and I want to welcome you to this podcast. I would like to begin today by quoting that unforgettable musical number that the birds offered us years ago, and I quote, To everything turn, turn, turn. There is a season. Turn, turn, turn. I thought about singing it to you, but I will seriously spare you um, that uh, suffering (laughs) during this Lenten season. And, you know, interestingly enough, that song, uh, which again, the birds released in the 60s, it was not first recorded by them, though they made it uh, more than a little famous. And what has always been of endless fascination to me, the lyrics are built around Ecclesiastes 3, but nowhere in that scripture is the word turn. <laughs> but I think that Peter Seeger added that in with good calls. Um, I mean, the entire imagery of Ecclesiastes 3 is about the turning of seasons and times. Now, Seeger seemed to have uh, he seemed to have had some bad luck with getting other lyrics rejected, but definitely hit a home run with these. And Seeger's other songs that didn't fly, they were considered by some to be too activist, um, which of course also makes me wonder what it was Seeger personally found to resonate in the words of Ecclesiastes with that activist spirit. But anyway, I encourage you to maybe start off your Lenten season the right way, of course, by listening to the birds and especially turn, turn, turn. And in particular, this word turn, this is going to kind of be our focus for today. And I think the word turn, it it implies many things, but three things that I want to keep in mind. Number one, turning is an action. Number two, turning probably means that there are some, some choices involved. And number three, turning kind of means that, that maybe you are picking one of those choices. So as we enter into this Lenten season, let's explore what it means to turn in our lives and in faith. This is Pneumaturgical. If you were able to listen to the last episode, you would know that we are now in the Lenten season proper. And if you hasn't, uh, haven't had a chance, excuse me, to listen to the Ash Wednesday episode uh, for this podcast, I, I would encourage you to actually do that um, before maybe continuing on today. Uh, one of the traditional readings from Scripture that we often encounter um, during the Lenten season comes from the book of Joel. And so I want to offer a reading from Joel chapter 2 today to begin our time, and and I want to begin in verse 1. It says, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was of old, nor ever will be in ages to come. 
Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes, before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses, they gallop along like cavalry, with a noise that of like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire, consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Before them the earth shakes, the sky trembles, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great, it is dreadful. Who can endure it? Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, Declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priest who minister before the Lord weep between the temple porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? This is the word of God, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, given to build up the people of God through the Spirit. Thanks be to God. Amen. Also, during the Lenten season, we will be uh, using, and I think I may have mentioned this in a prior episode, the poem Ash Wednesday by T.S. Eliot as a structure for our Lenten journey together. You may Remember that I uh, used uh, Eliot's poem, The Journey of the Magi, in a, a past episode for Epiphany. And so we're going to use his poem, Ash Wednesday, to help us structure our Lenten journey. The poem has six parts to it, and I want to read for you today the first portion of Eliot's poem. Because I do not hope to turn again, Because I do not hope, because I do not hope to turn. Desiring this man's gift and that man's scope, I I no longer strive to strive towards such things. Why should the 
aged eagle stretch its wings. Why should I mourn the vanished power of the usual rain? Because I do not hope to know the infirm glory of the positive hour. Because I do not think, because I know I shall not know the one veritable transitory power, because I cannot drink there where trees flower and springs flow, for there is nothing again. Because I know that time is always time and place is always and only place, and what is actual is actual only for one time and only for one place. I rejoice that things are as they are, and I renounce the blessed face and renounce the voice because I cannot hope to turn again. Consequently, I rejoice, having to construct something upon which to rejoice and pray to God to have mercy upon us and pray that I may forget these matters that with myself I too much discuss, too much explain, because I do not hope to turn again. Let these words answer for what is done, not to be done again. May the judgment not be too heavy upon us. Because these wings are no longer wings to fly, but merely vans to beat the air, the air which is now thoroughly small and dry, smaller and drier than the will. Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Pray for us now and at the hour of our death. So, here we are at the beginning of another Lenten journey. I think that the season of Lent, like all other liturgical times, is meant to be a part of our focus all the time, really. And as I've said from the beginning, the uh, liturgical calendar is a way of marking time in Jesus Christ and centering our whole lives upon him and the growth of our faith. The word Lent, not like Lent you find um, in that screen you pull out of the dryer, but Lent, L-E-N-T, comes from a Latin root which describes the lengthening of the days as we approach spring. Now, in the church, this lengthening of days between Ash Wednesday and Easter took on a particular form of spiritual discipline and worship that often um, involves uh, fasting of different kinds. And I described this uh, described this a little bit more, excuse me, in our uh, Ash Wednesday episode, which was and why I was encouraging you earlier to take a listen to it if you haven't had a chance. But the Lenten season is a journey, really, through repentance to new life, which comes in the liturgical calendar, and we begin to see it in the changing of the natural seasons around us. And repentance begins with a turn. Literally, this is what repentance means. 
it describes the action we are to take in turning away from our sinful desires and habits, attitudes, thoughts, words, relationships, and turning towards the grace, mercy, redemption, and transformation in Jesus Christ. T.S. Eliot, in his poem, Ash Wednesday, tries to artistically imagine what this um, turning looks like. Now, Eliot uh, is most famous for his poem, The Wasteland, which is considered by many literary critics to be a timeless kind of masterpiece. However, many also talk about this poem, Ash Wednesday, as perhaps being one of the most honest and integrated poems that T.S. Eliot ever produced. Now, when I've gone back and read through comments over the last 50 years or more about this poem, uh, because, of course, the poem was released uh, in the late 1920s, kind of going into 1930, uh, it, it was actually released in sections to begin with. Um, people, though, in their the comments that they make about this poem, they seem to, to really connect with it or not. Uh, there's some middle ground, but it, it really seems to be that people really like what T.S. Eliot is saying in this poem, or they're just kind of perplexed and uncertain about it. And I wonder if it's not because the subject matter of Ash Wednesday, of this poem, is faith, religion, religious conversion. I mean, all of that um, really can be taken even just from the title of the poem, Ash Wednesday. <laughs> um, and of course, religion, faith, conversion, these are all topics that people seem to have very decided opinions about anyway. So I guess it follows that they would have a lot of things to consider about this poem. Now, the imagery and the symbolism of Eliot's poem is thick, and it's something that we'll try to, to touch on at, at times. There's so many things you could say about this poem just as, as a piece of literature, and I encourage you, if you are someone who's interested in all the literary details, um, send me an email, pneumaturgical at gmail.com, and I would be happy to um, share with you some websites, other resources, which may help you in understanding those uh, details and aspects of this poem. Because Eliot, he references older famous sermons, Dante's Inferno, Shakespeare, a number of biblical types of images, uh, religious liturgy throughout the lines of the poem. So, Eliot is really amazing in how he pulls together so many different resources and kind of reimagines them all in ways. But those three repetitive opening lines of the poem strike me every time I read through, and I just want to read them again. Because I do not hope to turn again. Because I do not hope. Because I do not hope to turn. Let's just try to just reflect for a few minutes here on, on the image there. To start off with, the, the word because is repeated throughout the poem and, and throughout this first section. 
And if you think about that, it, it means that Eliot is starting off this poem talking about the effect of some prior cause or choice. What Eliot is describing in this poem is happening because of something. And if this poem is in fact about Eliot's personal conversion, then we enter into this poem, Ash Wednesday, at the moment where someone is making the choice of faith in Jesus Christ. And in this leap of faith, Eliot speaks about not hoping to turn again to desiring the gifts and the scope of men. And he's making, uh, I think, a play on some words of Shakespeare there. But the opposite of hope, if you think about it, is, is a kind of despair. So in a sense, Eliot is talking about this moment because of making this conversion, this choice of faith in Christ, we're coming to this moment of turning as turning away from the despair of a past way of living. And this becomes, I, I guess you could say, a way of illustrating repentance. Now, despair is also present in the scripture from Joel t- chapter 2 that we um, read through today. It's, it's a powerful and very um, heavy piece of scripture. And the, the entire lead into Joel 2 is about this coming day of the Lord, which in the Old Testament was often painted in terms of God's judgment. And man, does Joel, the prophet Joel, really describe this in, in just very profound terms, this army that, that, that's coming. It's, it's this army of gods, and they're coming upon um, a, an entire community, and then a city, and then even into homes. And this day of the Lord, again, it's, it's a way that the Old Testament painted um, this moment of God's judgment. And this judgment happens because we have trusted things that actually turn out to be our ruin. I don't think we, we sometimes give Scripture enough room to fully describe this imagery because the idols that we worship, the things that we need to turn away from, they are not always so obvious, right? We just think about, oh, we worship um, ourselves or money, um, you know, or power, you know, position, fame, what have you. But God's people, like other people around them, they got caught up sometimes in things that are not always so clear to us, um, types of promiscuous practices, uh, economic exploitation, cheating, um, enslaving other people, treating people as property. Um, There was an abuse of religion. Uh, definitely there was an ingrained racism at this, at this time. There was violence towards the innocent that was present. There was crooked and perverted forms of justice. The courts were, were not 
um, working appropriately. Widows and orphans were abandoned. The poor were neglected. The sick, the disabled. All of these things are part of the despair and the judgment. And like Eliot says, he cannot visit any longer what used to look like a beautiful garden because there's actually nothing there. And even in Joel chapter 2, there's this image of, of a beautiful garden being turned into a waste land. And that happens, I think, because um, we as people uh, who are that we're called to, to live lives of justice and righteousness, lives that are truly following the pattern God desires, and we try to kind of give ourselves the appearance that we're doing that, but we're really just living empty and wasteful lives. But there is some joy in all of this that Eliot finds in being able to turn from despair towards God. And there is hope in Joel chapter 2 as well because if we will genuinely turn in repentance towards God, God will turn in mercy and have compassion on us. And in Joel 2, this turning to God, this moment of repentance is literally the most pressing thing that needs to happen. Now, the way Eliot finishes out this first part of of the poem, Ash Wednesday, it's very reminiscent of that pressing need for repentance and turning. There is what I take to be a a type of prayer that Eliot's uh, offering us. These words, teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still. And then he goes into words from an actual liturgical prayer. They're um, part of the, uh, the Hail Mary prayer in the Catholic tradition. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Pray for us now and at the hour of our death. But I believe Eliot, he, he weaves off of these, these older traditional uh, words of prayer that are from a particular context, and he he gives them some new life here. And of course, this will lead into some other images that Eliot will offer in the following portions of his poem. But I think that the emotions, that's what I believe Eliot is kind of anchoring into with these last uh, words of this first portion of his, of his poem, and he's trying to drill down into that pressing, imminent need for turning and repentance that needs to happen right now for each of us. Perhaps there's even this sense of desperation, this sense of throwing oneself onto the mercy of God. And that's what should happen in our lives if if we're truly being uh, transformed by the work of the Spirit into what God desires, that is, in fact, what our turning must do in this Lenten season. So if you will, today join me 
in praying through these last words that Eliot gives us in his poem today, as we uh, join in, in the spirit of Joel 2 and, and, in the, and in what the work of the spirit is trying to do uh, for us and in us today as we turn ourselves. So let us pray. Eternal God, Father, Son, Spirit, the God of turning hearts, the God present when we turn from despair, the God who is present when we turn to hope. Teach us, Jesus, to care for our own repentance, for the broken and grieving among us, for the forgotten and abandoned, for honest justice, for integrity of spirit, for the respect of created life, for the peace of others, for purity and honor of conduct. Teach us, Jesus, not to care for the ways of slander and gossip, for the ways of deception and half-truth, for the support of economic injustice, for the denial of suffering, for trusting in the vanity of our own pride, for so-called justified violence, for the blatant prejudice in our communities, for the sin in our own heart. Teach us, Holy Spirit, to sit still in our own brokenness, in the pressing need of our repentance, in examining the contents of our heart. Teach us, Holy Spirit, to sit still and listen to your voice, showing us the way to turn. Holy Spirit, who searches the deep things of God, pray for us, even in our silent times of grief. Pray for us that we would turn, and in turning, find the joy of new life. Amen. Folks, I'm so glad you're joining with me um, in this pneumaturgical, excuse me, journey as we um, enter into the Lenten season, I'm excited um, uh, about continuing on this journey. And I hope that you are encountering the work of the Spirit as you listen um, You know, each week. I would love um, if, if you were able to, to leave a rating or a review of this podcast. I would love if, if you um, took the time to share it with others who might benefit from it as well. And uh, you can always um, send feedback, pneumaturgical at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you and learn how this pneumaturgical journey is impacting you in your life and faith. Blessings in this Lenten season.